I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, and we are going to talk today about the sword that I uh, displayed to uh, those children. I didn't think you would be that interested in seeing it, but I figured they would be very interested in seeing it. And if any of you want to see it, it's sitting up here after. Just don't take it home with you. I need to make sure I take that when I leave here. Ephesians chapter 6. You know if you've been with us uh, over the last number of weeks, we have been looking very carefully at the closing paragraphs of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we noticed that these are the paragraphs that Paul has been building to. When he says in chapter 6, verse 10... When he says, finally, he's not signaling to you that he's sort of wrapping up the book and you kind of mentally start packing up and, and we're going to go on to something else. That's not what he's talking about when he says, finally. When he gets to that word, finally, it's the signal that everything he's been talking about in the book is coming to its climax. This is where he has been going the entire time. We noted Uh, just so that we keep everything in our minds, that at the heart of the book, the Apostle Paul has revealed something about the mission of Jesus Christ. And that mission was to establish a peace, a shalom. We saw that in the opening verses of chapter 1. We looked at it at the closing verses of chapter 6, and it's right there in the middle where Jesus Christ made a peace between God and us. He sustains that peace. He offers that peace. And he is himself that peace. You and I have been the recipients of that peace. If we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we have repented of our sins, and we have embraced him as our Lord and Savior, we are the recipients of that peace. We not only have received that peace, we are actually collectively as a group the cosmic display of what that shalom, that's the Hebrew word for peace, what that shalom, what that peace should look like in the life of a body of believers. When people come into and interact with a group of believers who have been given peace, they ought to see that. They ought to feel that. They ought to sense that when they're around us, when they come to our homes. They ought to see what peace looks like when it's lived out in the relationships, in our marriages, with our children. When they come to church and they hang out with us or they're with us in in other settings, they ought to see the impact and the effect and the flavor that peace brings to our life. Because we are the cosmic display right now of a universal peace that Jesus Christ is eventually going to bring when he comes. And then Paul is going to talk at the end of chapter 6 about the fact that he and us with him are actually ambassadors of that peace. And an ambassador is someone who takes that peace into another realm. And the realm that Paul is taking the peace to is a very hostile realm. It is a very dark realm. Paul talks about this realm in chapter 2. It it is a realm that is under the control of someone that he describes as the prince of the power of the air. This leader, this person that we are reading about in chapter 2 is actually energizing everything that is going on in his realm, and it is a dark realm. It is a realm of blindness. It is a realm of death. And Paul says there is a peace, and there is a life, and there is a light that is coming into that realm to deliver people from darkness, to rescue them from bondage, and to bring them from death to life. And I am an ambassador of all of that. So if you're an ambassador, and I'm an ambassador of that amazing peace, and that truth, and that life, and that light, and you're taking it into the very heart of enemy territory, you can expect opposition. And that's exactly what Paul is getting to in chapter 6, when he says, finally, I've been giving you all of this information about this peace, about this life, about this light, about this truth, because you are to take it as an ambassador into that dark realm, and you are to rescue people from all of that. And when you go into that realm, you will find ruthless, relentless opposition 
from spiritual forces that have a great deal of power, a great deal of strength, and a great deal of authority. And they are going to come against anybody who brings light and truth and life and hope and joy into that realm. So what do you need if you are going to carry that message of hope and peace into that realm? And you're going to encounter that kind of opposition from those kinds of enemies. And the answer is, you need an armor. And that's exactly what Paul points you to. He points you to two things. He points you to this majestic armor that is available to you as an ambassador when you go into that realm and you invade that realm. And then he points you to a champion whose armor it is. There is an armor that is being given to you, and that armor actually belongs to someone. It belongs to our champion, and we have discovered who that champion is. His name is Jesus, and he is our Lord. And as we've looked at every piece of the armor, we've gone back to the Old Testament, and we've observed where Jesus himself is wearing that armor as he goes into the kingdom of darkness to bring life, light, and hope through truth. We noted, for example, that he wore the belt of truth. That's the first piece of the armor. And he wore the belt of truth by being faithful and obedient to every one of God's commands. He obeyed perfectly when we could not obey. So his obedience became our obedience. He wore the the belt of truth, and that perfect obedience that he rendered earned for him a perfect, unassailable righteousness. And that became a breastplate for us. That righteousness that Jesus earned through his perfect life of obedience was imputed to us when we acknowledged our need of it. And through his death on the cross, after having lived in perfect obedience and obtained a perfect righteousness, he took our place because we had no hope of that kind of obedience. We had no hope of that kind of righteousness. We were under condemnation. Remember, we were in the realm of darkness. And so he came into that realm and he not only obeyed for us, he suffered the penalty that was ours by his death on the cross. And and according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, that's how he made peace between God and us. That peace is unbreakable. It's such amazing news. And that's why Paul says that, that Messiah in the Old Testament strapped that news with eager readiness on his feet And he began announcing it to the world that that the God of Israel has come and he reigns and he has come to deliver the captive. He has come to set the prisoner free. And that's exactly the news that came to the city of Ephesus. And that's exactly what happened in the life of the people that Paul is writing to. And by the way, that's exactly what's happened to us. That amazing news called the gospel came to us. And it announced that there is now a peace between God whose wrath is falling on sin and upon sinners and us. And the reason for that peace is what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And you and I have received that. We are the beneficiaries of that. That's why our disobedience can never touch our relationship to God, because our relationship to God was never based on our obedience to start with. It was always based on Christ's obedience. That's why our little attempts at righteousness and our failures, our so often repeated failures in righteousness, don't affect our standing before God, because it was never our own righteousness that gave us that standing to start with. It was always the obedience of Christ. And it was always the righteousness of Christ that made that peace. And that is great news. And that's the news that you're taking. When you go into the kingdom of darkness around you and you are announcing that news to people who desperately need it. And that's why you need a shield. 
as you go into that kingdom of darkness, Satan is going to come at you with everything he has to try to discourage you or to discredit you when you take that amazing news to people in darkness so that they might believe and be rescued. And you need a shield to protect you. And we discovered as we started looking at that shield that that shield was actually God himself. God told Abraham in the Old Testament, I will be your shield. All through the Old Testament, the writers of the Psalms talk about God being the shield for his people. God indeed is your shield. And just like God was the shield for Israel and for David, ultimately he was the shield for Jesus in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he is your shield. And then you need a helmet that will protect your head. And we noted as we looked at the helmet that the helmet actually is our confident expectation that God will actually keep his word. The promises that he made to redeem you, the promises that he made to raise you from the dead, the promises that he made that when you stand before him on the day of judgment, having put your faith and trust only in Jesus Christ and nothing else, God said to you, when you do that, I promise you this, when you stand before me, I will welcome you into my kingdom. And at some point, you have to stake everything on those promises. And those promises, the confident expectation that you have in God's commitment to keeping his word is the helmet that will protect you from any doubt that Satan brings. And by the way, we noted that Jesus himself wore this helmet when he went to the cross because he had to trust that his father would keep his word and raise him from the dead. And did God do that? And the answer is what? Yes, and if God did that for his son, he's going to do that for all of his other children. That's you and that's me. What a great armor we have. And so by the time we finish with the helmet, we find ourselves clothed from top to bottom, from head to toe, in this majestic armor that Christ wore. And because of our union with him, our association, our unbreakable bond with him, the armor that is his is now ours. We, we put on the new way of life. We put off the old. We renew our mind, and that's the armor that we wear. But we need something for our hand. We need a weapon. And we need a weapon so that when we invade the kingdom of darkness, we can cut our way forward. We can free those who are in bondage. And we also need a weapon That isn't just good for cutting our way forward. We need a weapon that is going to defend us when we are advancing and the enemies of of darkness, or the enemies of truth rather, come against us and begin that up-close hand-to-hand combat that Paul talked about when he said we wrestle with these forces of darkness. So as we invade the kingdom of darkness with the gospel of peace, what is the weapon that God has given us? And it is this majestic sword that we read about in the text before us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 and take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God now if we're going to understand this sword we need to do two things we need to understand the background behind this image that Paul is giving and then we need to try to answer four very simple questions that'll help us understand how to use the sword effectively So that's really what we're going to do. We're going to look at the background, and then we're going to answer four very simple questions. And by the end of our time together, it's my prayer for my own life and for yours that this sword will always be in our hand, that we will actually understand what it is and how to use it effectively as we live as lights and as redeemed people in the middle of a very dark and, uh, and death-ridden kingdom. So let's look at the background. And, and there are two parts to the background. There, there is something that Paul had in mind related to the city of Ephesus and this sword. And then there's something in the Old Testament that he wanted the Ephesian Christians to be thinking about with regard to this sword. And so that's the background. What did he want them to know about the city of Ephesus that has, has something to do with the sword? And the answer is this. If you go back to when Paul first came to Ephesus, you find that story in Acts 19. And in Acts 19, 
you discover that when you get to the city of Ephesus, when Paul arrived there, there was a lot of spiritual darkness. This was a city very much like large pagan cities that was given over entirely to the worship of idols. And even though those idols weren't real, they were just stone images, the the spiritual force that animated all of that thinking was very real. It was a spiritual force of wicked spiritual beings that Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3 and again in chapter 6. And those beings were very real. And the demonic activity and all of the things that went along with that filled up the lives of the people at Ephesus. They were extremely supernatural, or superstitious rather. They believed in the supernatural. They were very superstitious. And they believed that their gods, whoever they worshipped, had spiritual beings that they could manipulate and they could use And sometimes they would use those beings to do evil things in the life of the citizens of Ephesus. And so they needed a weapon that would somehow protect them from whatever evil being might come against them. And so they had a magical weapon that they would buy in the form of an amulet, a charm. And there would be a special word on that amulet, a word of power. And you had to pay a lot of money to get that amulet and to find out what that word was. And as long as you had that amulet or that charm with that word and you wore it around your neck or you had it in your possession, then you were protected from whatever spiritual being you believed was coming against you. And they had a name for those charms or those amulets. They were called letters or word. And and because they were sold in the city of Ephesus, they were called Ephesian letters. And by the time the gospel came to the city of Ephesus and Paul began to take the sword of truth and cut away all of this darkness and cut through all of this superstition and make available to people the light of God's truth, many, many Ephesians began to turn away from all of that pagan darkness to embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. And when they became Christians, they abandoned all of that magic. And they brought their amulets together and they burned them. And and we're told that they brought so many of them and they were so valuable that they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, think about the immense value of 50,000 pieces of silver in first century economy. This was a very powerful statement that was being made. Now, here's the question. If you lived in Ephesus and you saw people doing this, and you really believed that those amulets were their only protection against all the spiritual forces of evil that were coming against them, if you really believe that, you're looking at these people and you're saying, what in the world are you thinking? How in the world are you going to protect your life? How are you going to protect your family? How are you going to protect your kids? How are you going to protect your job? I mean, do you not understand that there are demons that possess people? In fact, in the city of Ephesus, they were so common that when Paul came, he cast out seven demons from one person. And people are going, are you kidding? You're getting rid of the one thing we know will protect us and shield us. It's the one weapon you have against all of this demonic activity. What are you going to use now? And Paul's answer is, I have a better weapon. I have a better sword that I will put in your hand. And that sword is a letter from God to you. You just burned all of your Ephesian letters. God has a letter to you, and it's the book of Ephesians. And when you have this letter and you open up this letter and you begin to read this letter, 
You begin to see the truth and the light and the Spirit of God that opens your eyes in the prayer in chapter 1. And then the Spirit of God that energizes you and enables you in the prayer of chapter 3. And by the time you get to the end of your very own Ephesian letter from God, all of this darkness has been dispelled and you have been given a far more effective and far more powerful weapon in your hand than any charm that you wore around your neck. And that weapon is a sword that the Spirit gave you. And that's the sword we're reading about. So that's the first piece of background that we need to look at. Paul is saying to these Christians who are announcing to the entire city of Ephesus, we are giving up our old word, we're giving up our old weapon, we're giving up our old charms because we have a much better and a much more effective weapon to protect us from the darkness. And by the way, you have that weapon. But Paul also is talking about the Old Testament background to this weapon. And it's in four texts in the Old Testament. And they're all in the book of Isaiah. And they describe words that come out of the mouth of a particular person. God's own champion, the Messiah. Let me read you the first two of these words and see if you spot them. In Isaiah eleven four. But with righteousness, he, that's Messiah, when he comes, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So there's something coming out of Messiah's mouth that is going to do something with regard to the enemies of God. Isaiah 49.2, we get a little more definition. He said this, He, God, made my mouth, that's Messiah now, Jesus, saying to God, You made my mouth like a sharp sword. So when you, when you see the Old Testament, these two verses, they describe something coming out of, of Messiah's mouth. The words that come out of Messiah's mouth are going to be like a powerful, unstoppable sword, and they are going to destroy God's enemies. And if you fast forward 800 plus years, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, describes a time when the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come And he is going to take the man of sin, the lawless one, the man who has captured the entire earth with his deception, and with one word, he is going to destroy him with a word out of his mouth. And then in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20, Jesus is going to, with a word out of his mouth, he is going to take the beast and the false prophet and the dragon, Satan himself, And with a mere word from his mouth, he is going to cast those three alive into the lake of fire. I mean, folks, these are not just nice prophecies in the Old Testament. These are things that are really going to happen. So the words that come out of Jesus' mouth have great power. And the second two verses are the positive side of that. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse 19. They will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind, the breath, that's the idea behind the word wind, the breath, the spirit of the Lord, drives. And in Isaiah 59, 21, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is on you. He's talking to Jesus now. My spirit that's on you, that's driving you forward, that spirit is going to put words in your mouth. And those words will not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring from this time forth forevermore. And when Messiah comes and uses those words, two things happen. He defeats the devil and he rescues sinners. He defeats the devil and he rescues sinners. How does he do it? He does it with the words that come out of his mouth, and they're described as a sword. So this sword is an amazingly powerful weapon 
It's not just a sort of metaphorical idea here. Just like Jesus earned a perfect obedience and a perfect righteousness and made a real peace. And he is our real protector. He is a real shield. And just like we can trust in the real promises of God that they will really be fulfilled as our helmet, this sword is also real. And so we need to understand what exactly it is and how it works. And the best way I know to do that this morning in the time we have so that we can kind of keep our, our focus and our attention on, on what God is saying here is this. We need to answer or try to answer four simple questions. Question number one. So what exactly is the nature of this amazing weapon? So, Pastor Sam, you're, I get the picture. You know, here are the Ephesians, and they got these charms that they were wearing around their neck, these amulets, these Ephesian words. And now Paul is replacing all of that when they repented and they confessed and they burned all of that and turned. God put through the Apostle Paul words in their heart. He gave them a word and that's now their weapon. But how does this weapon work? And so the way Paul talks about this is he describes it as a sword of the Spirit. Take in your hand, he said, the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you lived in Paul's day, There were two basic ideas when you were thinking about a sword. If you went to battle, they didn't have guns, they didn't have tanks, they didn't have firearms, they had spears, they had javelins, they had bow and arrows, they had crossbows, and they had swords. And the sword was, in the hand of a good soldier, one of the most powerful and feared weapons you could come against. So when Paul is talking about a sword, he got everybody's attention right away. And if you lived in the first century and you knew anything about warfare, you knew that there were two basic kinds of swords. There was a really long sword that that required two hands to use, and so this was called the Thracian sword because often it would be in the hands of the enemies of Rome. And these were long swords and they were heavy, and if they landed a blow, they they were unbearably Uh, difficult to stop. And so that was a long sword. But then there was this short sword that that had two sharp edges and a really long point. And and you you, you carried it in one hand, and in the other hand you had your shield, and it was unbelievably maneuverable. It was light, but it was strong. And when you came in and you were doing hand-to-hand combat with your enemy, the point of this sword could penetrate almost any leather or any skin armor that you wore, and it could bring devastation to the enemy. And so when Paul is talking about the sword that God is giving you, that's the sword. It's this short, sharp sword that Paul is later going to talk about and the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about when he says it's alive, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharp, it can penetrate. This sword is from the Spirit. The Spirit is its source. In other words, where did this sword come from? Where did these words that that Paul describes as a sword come from? And the answer is the sword, this short, sharp weapon that that actually cuts forward in in the realm of darkness uh, is a word that the Spirit of God has given. Paul's going to describe it this way when in chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about the word of the truth, which is the gospel that you believed. So Paul describes this sword as this incredibly powerful weapon that the Spirit of God has given to you. And when you use it, the Spirit of God energizes it. And then he's going to define it. He's going to say, now, now this, this sword I'm talking about, let me get real specific. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. And you're like, okay, I, I, I read that text and, and I get it. Well, let me just make sure that we understand the nuance that Paul has here. Because just like there were two ideas for sword, that long sword and then that short thrusting sword, there are two ideas for the term word. You know one of those terms really well. How many of you have ever heard of the term logos? How many of you have ever heard of logos, all right? That word is, is that term is how you, would, how you would say word, and by word, we would mean message, the entire message. I have a word for you. What's the word? And. What do you mean, and? 
That, that's the word. I just get one word. No, you, you're going, no, that's not the word. What's the word? And then I would tell you the whole word. I would, give you, I would use a lot of little words in sentences and paragraphs to tell you the big word. And, and when we're talking about the big idea, the message, we use the word logos. And, and you see this in John 1, right? In the beginning was the what? Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that word from God came to announce a message, a word, a logos. So when we think about Jesus as the word, he is the logos. But that big word expresses itself in a lot of individual statements. And those individual statements, if you were trying to describe that to somebody in Paul's day, you would use a different term than logos. You would use the word rhema. And so Paul is saying this, that sharp sword that is the most powerful weapon ever in the kingdom of darkness that will cut your way forward and defend you from everything, that weapon is the word of God. And more specifically, it is the individual statements in the word of God that when you use those statements properly and skillfully, they will defend you. They will defend you. And so that's the function of this sword. It is the individual propositional statements of God's word, and they have an offensive value. You can actually take these words and you can penetrate the darkness. You can take these words and you can sit down next to someone who's enslaved in sin, blind to the truth about Jesus Christ, and you can open up your mouth and you can take them through the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's articulated in the scripture, and something will happen in their heart. The Spirit of God will take those words and he will open their eyes and they will see the truth about Jesus Christ and believe. And you know how I know that's true? Because that's what happened to you. And that's what happened to me. You came to believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus Christ. And we've said it this before many times here. You would never believe those kind of things about any other human on earth. A virgin birth, you would never believe that about another human being. Perfect, never sinning, not one time, not in word or deed or thought. No lustful thought, no, no, no ill will, no, no, no bitterness of heart, nothing, nothing. You would never believe sinless perfection in any other human being, no matter how nice or how well you know. But you believe that about Jesus. You believe both of those things about Jesus. Raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe that about any other human being. You believe that about Jesus. How did you believe? Because you heard the truth from God's word and the spirit of God opened your eyes so you believed. So this word has amazing power to penetrate even into our spiritual blindness and the deadness of our hearts. And then it has defensive power. It can protect us from the enemy and from every temptation that the enemy shows. It it overcomes the spiritual attack that he gives us. It strengthens us in the midst of our Our battle, Psalm 119 says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. And in James 4, verse 7, uh, James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee. You say, well, what's the point of all of this? Okay, so I get it. This, this, you're making the point that the sword is the Bible. It's not just the Bible. It's the actual words of the Bible. So what, what do you mean by that? Well, let me just put it to you this way. Satan is not afraid of a Christian who holds up his Bible. He's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of, you know, the version of the Bible that you have or how wonderful the goatskin leather smells or how nice the pages are and how much you've underlined and all the things. When you hold up your Bible and wave it in Satan's face, he, he is not at all bothered by that. What actually stops him in his tracks and sends him packing is when you open up the Bible and you begin to take specific statements that God wrote there 
and use them appropriately in your war against sin and in your war against the devil. It's a Christian who knows his Bible or knows how to use her Bible that is actually the Christian that is using the sword appropriately. So when we think about the sword, its nature is this. It is a weapon that consists of the individual propositional statements that God has given under inspiration and that his spirit energizes in our lives as we live them out. All right, does that make sense to everybody? That's the nature. Second thing we want to do is this. Now that I know what the sword is, what can it do? What can it do? What is its ability? And there are four things this sword can do amazingly well. When you proclaim it, when you actually take the word of God and you start proclaiming it, it rescues and releases prisoners from the kingdom of darkness. It rescues and releases prisoners through the kingdom of darkness. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 10 when he said, faith comes by hearing. How does a prisoner of darkness become a son or daughter of light? And the answer is by faith. Well, where in the world are they going to get faith? And Paul's answer is, faith comes by what? Hearing. But what do they need to hear? They need to hear the word of God. They need to hear what God has said about his son. And when you proclaim the word of God, here's what happens. Paul said, this is what happened. When you heard the word of truth, Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation... When you heard that word and believed in him, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. You became a permanent, untouchable son or daughter of God. So this sword, when you proclaim it, will rescue and release sinners from the kingdom of darkness. When you depend on it, it will defeat Satan and overcome temptation. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I read... Um, a wonderful paragraph by a Christian theologian named John Piper. And it really struck me. I want to read it to you. I don't normally just read you things, but let me read this brief line to you. He said this, Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. I just, I sat there. I was like, wow, that's really true. Sin is what happens when my heart is not satisfied with God. And then he said this, nobody sins out of duty. It's not like, okay, I got to go sin again. None of us sin out of duty. When we sin, we sin because we actually think that the thing we're sinning is better than what God has for us. That's his point. And I, I, I thought to myself, you know, that is so true in my life. Sin holds out a promise to me. Every sin I've ever committed has made promises to me. If you will just do this, this will happen. If you will just do this, this won't happen. Sin makes amazing promises to me. Nobody, myself included, ever sins out of duty. We sin because we want what that sin promises. And there's only one thing powerful enough to overcome a promise, and that's an even bigger promise. And that's the whole point. This word makes promises to you. And you, the way you overcome sin is, is you have to listen to the promise that sin makes you, and you have to defeat it with a bigger promise that God makes to you. And by the way, the promises that God makes to you, or makes when God makes promises, they expose the deceptiveness of these promises that aren't promises at all. So the word of God, as we depend on it, will help us defeat Satan and overcome temptation. When we submit to it, it renews our mind, it strengthens our heart, it delivers our soul. Listen to James. James says this, Put away all filthiness and wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to deliver your souls. And as you meditate on this word and savor its sweetness, it makes the thoughts of 
your heart and the meditations of your mind and the words of your mouth acceptable to God. That's the whole point to Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, how in the world is that going to happen? When you do Psalm 1, verse 2, and your meditation is in the law of the Lord, and you meditate delightfully, and you delight in that meditation day and night, and it renews your mind like Romans 12, 2 talks about. And so the Word of God is actually able to do things. And then thirdly, where can I find this weapon? And the answer is, it's available to you. Now that you know what it is and what it can do, how do I get it? And the answer is, it's in your hand. It's, it's near. It's accessible. This is what Paul said to the Romans. He said, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's the word of faith that we proclaim. There's not a one of you in this room that can walk out of here and say, I wish I had that sword. I wish I could get that sword. It's available to you. And it's operable. It's inescapable. It actually works in you. That's what we were talking about when I was talking to the children earlier. It's alive. It's living. It, It does work in your life. It penetrates into the deepest corners of your life. It penetrates into the recesses of your mind and in your heart. And it has the power to expose everything that is there, not to shame you, but to transform you. Because the one who sees it all already knows it all. He knows knows everything about you. He knows things you don't know about you yet. And he takes this sword and he uses the sword to open up your heart and open up your mind and to open up your will so that his spirit can begin transforming you. It's profitable for life and godliness. Paul told Timothy These writings that you've been reading from the time you were a boy are powerful. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Why? Because they're breathed out by God and they're profitable for teaching. They can teach you about life. For instruction, they can show you where to go and how to go. For reproof, they can correct you. They can train you in righteousness. And then this, this word that is near and, and, and workable in your life, it's working, operable in your life, and that's so profitable, is unstoppable. It, if you let the word of God loose in your life, it will do its work. How do I know? Because God said so. Listen to this statement in Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth. I mean, when rain comes down and snow comes down, it never goes back in that form, without doing something first. It waters the earth, and when it waters the earth, something happens to the earth. What happens to the earth? Making it sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed in the thing that I sent it to do. When you let the word of God loose in your life, God says, I will make sure it does what I intended to do. And that brings us to the final thing as we close this morning, and that is this. Well, Pastor, if if I understand what the word of God is, it's like this sword, and I I can see what it does, and and I know that it's available to me. I, I know I can take it and use it. How does it actually work? I mean, how, how, how is it used? Because you said it was going to be offensive, that we could, we could take this uh, like a, a, an offensive weapon and cut our way forward in darkness, and it had a defensive idea. How does this actually work? And so I want to end this morning with two illustrations of how the Word of God works, and we're going to take them right out of the Bible. The first of them is when the Apostle Paul took these words, he took this sword, and he went to a city, and he opened up his mouth, and he began to tell them the truth about a God they had never seen and his son whom they had never met. And this was the city of Thessalonica. So when Paul showed up at this city, 
He comes into the city as a total stranger. I mean, here are tens of thousands of people, and they for, for decades, actually for centuries, had been worshiping all the pagan idols, and they had never heard about God. They had never heard about the God of heaven, whose name is Yahweh or Jehovah. They had never heard of that God. There were some people in their city who had a little synagogue somewhere, and yeah, they had this weird belief in this strange God, but, the, but they're certainly, I mean, we're not at all familiar with that God. We have all these other gods that our fathers and our grandfathers and our ancestors have worshipped, and all of a sudden comes a total stranger, and he starts talking about a new God. And this new God is the only God, and his name is Yahweh, and he has a son whose name is Jesus. Well, well where is this God? He's everywhere. Well, what does he look like? He, he's, you can't see him. Well, if you want to see Apollos, you can go down to the temple, and there's a statue. You want to see Diana? She's over there. there her main temple's back in Ephesus. You can see all these gods. Where's your God? Well, he's, he's invisible. Where's his son? Who's his son? We've never heard of him. Well, his, his name is Jesus. Where is he from? Nazareth. What's Nazareth? Well, it's, just, uh, it's complicated. It's, it, just think of Jerusalem. You heard of Jerusalem? Never heard of it. Israel. Oh, yeah, that's that little country with those people that are just really obnoxious. Yeah, well, well okay, that's, that's him. He's from there. Well, what happened to him? He was crucified. He was crucified? Like by the Romans? Yeah. I mean, that, that's your God? That, that's who you want us to follow? Some God we can't see who sent his son out of this backward country and he has so little power that he couldn't even stop the Romans from crucifying him. You want us to leave all of this for that? And Paul's like, yeah. And you know what happened in, or in 1 Thessalonians 1? Here's how it describes what happened to many, many, many of these people. They turned from all of this to worship this, a God they couldn't see who sent a son who was crucified by the Romans. And then it says this, they turned from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait with confident expectation for the coming of that resurrected son. How do you explain that? Those are words that came out of Paul's mouth, but I mean, how did that happen? And the answer is, those words were accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, how did you believe that? How did you turn from all of this? from your religion, from your works, from your baptism, from all the rituals? How did you leave all of that and just follow the plain truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you and paid for you? And it is by faith in him alone and by grace from him alone that you are delivered from all of it. How did you believe that? And the answer is, when those words came, the Holy Spirit worked those words into your life. So that's example number one. Example number two is an even more powerful example. It occurs three times in our Bible. It's the story when God's champion came. In Matthew chapter 4, in Mark chapter 1, and in Luke chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather, God's champion appears, Jesus appears, and he's baptized. And something amazing happens when he's baptized. When he's baptized... The Spirit of God descends on him, and God makes an announcement from heaven. And here's the announcement. This one that you're watching, that's coming out of the water, this one is my beloved son. This one is my champion. And the next thing you read is that the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness. You know, sometimes we think of the temptation of Jesus is that Jesus was hiding out in the wilderness... And, and, uh, and, and Satan saw him and he goes, I'm going to get him. Actually, it's different. It's the Spirit of God impelling Jesus into battle. Jesus is actually invading Satan's territory. He is taking the battle to Satan. 
And if you listen to Matthew describe Jesus, he's remarkably like another group of people, Israel, who went to the wilderness on their way to be the champion of the world to bless all of the nations. And in that wilderness, they were tested, Deuteronomy 8, they were tested in three ways and they failed. And Matthew says, here is the new Israel of God. He is going into that wilderness and he's going to be tested and he is going to pass the tests. Luke says, let me paint it for you a little differently. This new Israel of God, Jesus of Nazareth, this new champion is actually the second Adam because in the garden, the first Adam faced three temptations and fell. This second Adam is going to go and he's going to confront Satan and he's going to face the same three temptations and he's going to pass. And he is going to banish Satan. And then the rest of the Lord's ministry, he's going to go up and down the kingdom of darkness and he is going to rout Satan's forces. He's going to cast demons out of people. He's going to still storms. He's going to raise people from the dead. Where did that begin? It began when he went into the wilderness to do battle with the enemy of our soul. So how did he win? There were three temptations. And you know them well. We'll just summarize them very quickly. The first temptation was the temptation to use power, his power, to satisfy his own needs. Here you are in the wilderness. I know who you are. You know who you are. God knows who you are. And you're hungry. And you've been hungry for 40 days. By the way, Israel went out in the wilderness and they were hungry. And and here's the test. Satan says, I know you, and you know you, and you know you have the power, and you have a word. You are the word for crying out loud. You can just say the word on your own, and all these stones will be bred. You can take your power and use it, because obviously your father isn't doing much for you right now. So Jesus had to decide what kind of a messenger, what kind of a servant, what kind of a champion was he going to be? Was he going to take his own power and use it, or was he going to rest in the power of God and what God had written? And you remember how Jesus answered that first temptation? He said this, it is written. He didn't use his own words. He submitted to the word God had given many years ago. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. And Satan says, okay, point one, you got point one, you scored, but I got, I got another, I got something else for you. I know who you are, God knows who you are, and you know who you are, but nobody else knows who you are. You, you know you're the Messiah, you know you're the anointed one, you know you're the one that all the promises pointed to, but nobody around here believes that. I was there when you showed up before the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, and I heard what your father said to you, but nobody here believes that about you. But there's a way for you to make God show people that. You could go to the temple, get up on top of the temple, jump down, and God made a promise in Psalm 91 that he would protect your feet from dashing down on the stones. And you know what? You could force God's hand. You could take God's word and use it against him and force his hand. You can grab power to control and manipulate God. This is what Israel did when they got out in the wilderness and they found out this isn't what I thought it was going to be. There's nothing to eat here. There's, there's this Moses guy and, and, and we, you know, man, and, and what are we doing? We want to go back and we want either God is going to give us meat or we're going back. And they put God to the test. And Jesus looked right at Satan and he said, it is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan says, score two. And then he does an amazing thing. He takes Jesus to the top of a mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. So he says, you know, I was there in Daniel 7 when, when your father sat on that throne and he promised you all of these kingdoms. But you and I both know what's, what, what your father has in mind. I can give you all of these kingdoms now. 
And so here's the temptation. Would Jesus seize power over all earthly authority? Or would he wait for God to give him what he had promised? And he says, all you have to do to get all of this is, is worship me. All you have to do is what Israel did in the, in the wilderness in Exodus 32 when they made that golden calf. All you have to do is bow down to somebody other than God. And if you just bow down to me, I will give you everything that your father is withholding. And Jesus looked right and said, and he said, away, be gone. I mean, this is a command. He's banishing Satan. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. This was Jesus on the attack. This was not Jesus sort of hiding out in the wilderness, hoping Satan wouldn't see him. Oops, he saw me, and now he's coming, and i got to figure out how to fight. This is Jesus taking the word of God on the offensive, and he goes right into Satan's domain. And when he vanquishes Satan, he goes up and down the kingdom of Israel, and he releases people from the bondage that they were in Satan. And by the way, that's what releases us. That's what releases you. It is the word of God in the mouth of Jesus that changes everything. You say, well, pastor, what am I supposed to do with all this? What am I supposed to do with all this? Let me ask you this. Are you feeble in your fight against sin? Are you feeble in your fight against sin? Is it because... Your hand is filled with all of the empty promises that Satan and the world have offered you and you have no room in your hand for the word of God. Are are you fruitless in your work for the gospel? Do you talk boldly about the gospel? Do you talk a lot about how other people need to be saved but, but you're really not involved in it and there's no fruit coming out of your life for it? Are you feeble in your work for the gospel. The problem is not in the sword, right? We know that. The problem is in our use of the sword. And so there's one final thing that I want to make sure you and I take away, and this is where we're going to close today. I have a sword in my hand, and you have it in your lap or on your device. And maybe you can even go right to the verses that God has given you. But here's the thing. Are you submitted to that word? Has that word conquered your will? Because until it conquers your will, you will be defeated every time. You know what? You know how how Jesus defeated Satan? It wasn't in the magic quotation of the words. It was Jesus announcing to Satan, I'm going to submit to what God said here. God said, man is not to live by bread alone. And so you know what? I am not going to live by bread alone. In fact, if my father doesn't give me bread and I don't live, I'm still going to obey. I'm going to submit to this word. God said, do not tempt God. And so you know what? I'm going to submit to that. I'm not going to tempt God. No matter how much I think I might gain by doing so, I am not going to tempt God. I am not going to worship anybody other than God. It's not just that he said the words, he submitted to the words. And that's my problem. And I would guess it's yours. When I sin against God, it's generally not because I don't know the verse or I don't know the word. It's because I decide at some point not to submit. It didn't conquer my will. And so this morning as we leave and we think about this majestic weapon, my question for you is this. Where in your life are you not submitted to what God has given you? And when you put your finger on that place, you have discovered what God is at work doing in your life. And when you submit to that word and you confess your unsubmission to it and you repent of that, then all of a sudden that word begins to cut away at that air of your life and, and the transformation begins to happen. And all of us have experienced that at some point in our life. So we have a marvelous weapon. And I pray as we use it, God will bless it in our lives. Father, thank you for this word, this sword 
and its work in our life. We think of our champion Jesus who, who went on the offense, who went into that wilderness as your champion and, uh, and, and encountered Satan, the, only, the second person in the history of mankind to ever have a direct encounter with, with, the, with the devil. Intense, personal, and he vanquished the enemy by submitting to your word. So, Lord, help us to do that. Lord, there may be some of us here who need to submit to what you've said about our salvation. Maybe some of us need to submit in some area of our life where you're at work or exposing some behavior, some mindset. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.